all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking, is a show that explores issues that relate to you and your family. To find out what we're all about, subscribe to the podcast by using any podcast app or by downloading our MPB Public Media app. Good morning, and thanks for joining us today here on Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. I'm your host, Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And today we are going to be debunking some diet myths. These are things I encounter in clinic almost on a daily basis or emails that I get in um, with just nutrition confusion. And that's not hard to get confused uh, with all of the competing messaging that is going on out there. But I'm going to try and cut through some of that and uh, debunk some of these myths. And to help me do that, I'm going to have um, Southern Remedy producer Kevin Farrell read out those myths. All right. Uh, Myth number one, if this were only true. (laughs) Myth number one is there's one perfect diet for everyone. Well, you know, no. You know, I mean, uh, spoiler alert, uh, all the things he reads are going to be a myth, you know, and there are several things that I'd like to kind of pick apart there. And the first is the word diet. Um, and, you know, the use of the word diet is, is very common in our society, but it usually refers to some type of structured or restrictive type of way of eating um, that's usually to, to treat something, right? We're either trying to lose weight or we're trying to control our blood sugar or blood pressure, or those different kinds of things. And so the word diet just kind of has a whole bunch of negativity surrounding it because it usually implies we're going to go on something and we're going to go off something and all those different kinds of things. So you'll hear me say the word diet, but in general, I'm talking about eating patterns or ways of eating, which is just the foods we choose to put in our body. So back to the the kind of the meat, so to speak, of this particular myth, there is not one specific quote unquote diet that if you just do that, health is just going to fall into your lap, right? So you may say, well, Josie, I have listened to your show before and you have talked about plant-based diets till, you know, till we can't hear about it anymore. And yes, when we're talking about dietary patterns that support health, more plants is the way we want to go. But that does not mean that you have to adhere to any specific diet. You don't have to be vegan. You don't have to be vegetarian. You don't have to be on the Mediterranean diet or the DASH diet or any of these different kinds of things. We just want a a dietary pattern or an eating pattern that focuses on plants. When we look at all the, the countries in the world and those that have better health outcomes or live longer with less disease, 
the foundation of all of those ways of eating are heavy on the plants. So more fruits, more vegetables, more grains, more nuts, seeds, that kind of stuff, and less processed uh, or ultra processed foods um, and, you know, less uh, meats and processed meats and those types of things. But any food can fit into um, a healthy way of eating. And when we put rigid barriers around ourselves, it is very easy to then feel guilty or feel like you failed at something. You know, if you say, well, I'm going to be um, vegan. And then you have something with a little bit of animal product in it. Even if it was a healthier option than than something else, you may have that guilt associated with, well, I just went off of this diet or I failed at this diet, that kind of thing. So the the dietary pattern that is good for everyone is one that you can afford to get, right, that you enjoy eating and that is balanced in terms of having um, fruits, veggies, grains, nuts, seeds, and then smaller amounts of um, meats, cheeses, those types of things. But it's really about what you what you can afford, what you like, and what supports health. All right. This is Southern Remedy, Healthy and Fit. I'm Kevin Farrell, helping Josie debith some diet myth, debunk that is, <laughs> some diet myths this morning. <laughs> Number two on the diet myth list. Processed food is bad for you. And I know you're thinking, you just said processed food, right? So when we think about food processing, anything we do to food is other than just like plucking it out of the ground and popping it in your mouth. Anything is a form of processing. And so when we're talking about foods that support health or foods that maybe are not as great for us, there's really uh, kind of shades of that, right? So there are ultra processed foods, which don't look like anything that they started out as. Um, and then there are minimally processed foods. And so I just got back from a trip to D.C., got to go to all the Smithsonian's, went to um, – there was a, a food exhibit, and it really was the history of food um, in America in this exhibit. And one of the things that, that struck me was uh, they had this um, device, I guess you would say, that was kind of the first piece of equipment that was used to turn big old carrots – into carrot sticks, right? And that's a form of processing. And that's what this exhibit was about, was about processing. But in that case, I would call that processed food probably good for us, right? Because it made it easier to consume, right? You know, if you're looking for a quick snack, it's really easy to grab something that's already done for you, right? That's the allure of chips. and Well, not the only allure. They taste good too. But, uh, you know, you just pop open the bag and they're, they're just bite-sized things that you can pop in your mouth. So when we're looking at ways to get more fruits and veggies into our diet, if they are easy to consume, meaning they're already washed for you, already peeled for you, already cut up for you, it's much easier to grab that and, and dip it in, you know, whatever your dip of choice is. So that particular form of processing would be a benefit, right? Um, dairy, right? We want to have pasteurized dairy products. That is good for health as well. And that is a form of processing. So I'm always hesitant to just kind of say, don't have processed foods. You know, it really have to look at what was the processing that was done and was it done to make the food safer or easier to consume? Or is it really just 
turning that food into something else. And I often use um, the the Cheeto example, and I I do not I don't have a problem with Cheetos, right? Cheetos are delicious. Um, I don't know if you're a crunchy Cheeto person or a puffy Cheeto person or both. Um, but when you look at what that started out as, it, it is a corn based product and looks absolutely nothing like corn. So you know shucking corn and then cutting it off the cob is a form of processing, right? You have you have processed that food into something else. And then along the continuum, uh, you can turn that corn into cornmeal, which is, again, a form of processing. You can then turn it into cornflakes, right? And then you can turn it into some products that are less recognizable as a corn-based product, which would be something like a, a Cheeto or, or something like that. So don't just lump all processed foods together. We want to choose the ones that are as minimally processed as possible, but some food processing is there for for our safety and for our health. Uh, you know, so that's a really important concept for people to to realize and to think about um, because we want to not make food bad, right? And not make people feel guilty about foods or that you have to eat some super quote-unquote clean way of eating to have the the perfect dietary pattern when that's just simply uh, not the case. It's more about, again, what you can afford, what you have access to, and making the majority of those things as less processed as you can so that we're staying away from those ultra-processed foods and focusing more on those foods that resemble what it is they started as. And we do have a caller who's been hanging on for us, so we're going to go to Osaika and say, good morning, Kathleen. How can I help you? Well, I listen all the time, so this is the first time I'm calling in because I have been bothered with this question since my father was alive, ranting and raving about them pasteurizing the milk. Yes, ma'am. Well, thank, thanks for listening, and thanks for calling. Happy happy first call. How can I help you? Well, um, question about difference between homogenized, pasteurized, raw milk, uh, 2%. That will clear a lot for me. And you're right. Everybody should pay attention to the non-processed foods. I was diagnosed with cancer almost 12 years ago, and I was eating very healthy, but the first thing they told me, no sausage, no this, no that. Uh, if you buy canned goods, try to buy strictly like canned can corn, not Mexican corn with other stuff in it because right. it takes so many other hands on the product. Right. So if you could help me with that milk thing, I'll go ahead and listen. All right. That's perfect. All right. So there were several questions there regarding uh, the processing of milk. And so the first was homogenization. And so what is that? Well, it is how they get the kind of the fat globules, I guess you would say, um, uh, homogenous, which just means evenly distributed throughout the um, uh, the liquid so that every sip tastes the same, has the same mouthfeel, the same uh, nutrient content, those kinds of things. That's in contrast to, let's say, a plant-based milk that um, is not processed that way. And so the nutrients tend to settle out to the bottom of those milks. That's why I always say if you're using a plant-based milk, um, you need to shake that sucker up before you drink it so that you kind of distribute um, those nutrients uh, evenly through there. Uh, then you mentioned kind of different fat contents or or what you're referencing is fat contents. You said whole milk, 2%, 1% skim, those kinds of things. And that has to do with the percent of that milk that is milk fat. So whole milk um, has about 8%, I mean, sorry, 8 grams of fat per cup. 
Therefore, um, 2% is half of that. So you're going to get 4 grams. 1% is half of that. So you're going to get 2 grams. And then all the way down to skim milk, which doesn't have um, fat in it, has the, the, the fat removed off of it. And so... You know, when you're choosing milks, you have to stop and think, how much milk am I actually using, right? You know, if you're just having um, cereal in the morning and you're going to choose milk to put on that and that's the only milk you have during the day, I'm not going to get that hung up on what the fat content of that particular milk is, you know, because having a little bit of fat is satiating means it fills us up keeps us full of fuller for longer so if having that whole milk on your cereal is going to keep you from um, needing to go to the vending machine and snack on something later on that that's not it doesn't make me mad right Um, now if you're drinking multiple glasses of milk during the day and you're trying to work on uh, maybe weight loss or um, heart health those kinds of things pulling back on some of that fat and choosing a lower fat option may be the way to go or switching to a plant-based milk um, as well is another great option there Um, Greek yogurt, which is often something that we uh, use for breakfasts or for replacing uh, sour creams and and heavier fat items. A lot of people think they don't like that because they're choosing the completely fat-free versions, which is fine, but those are tangier. And so a lot of people think they don't like Greek yogurt because of that kind of tang, especially when they're putting it in recipes. So if you bump the fat content of that up a little bit, it takes some of that um, tang out of it and uh, you get the good good protein from that. Uh, Now, in terms of pasteurization, pasteurization is heating the milk to a certain degree to kill off uh, bad bacteria that are in there and is absolutely um, something that the majority of um, health societies recommend because there are dangers from consuming uh, raw milk, even if it's somewhere that you normally consume raw milk from, Um, especially if you're uh, elderly, if you're a little kid, if you're immunocompromised, all of those different kinds of things uh, can put you at risk for foodborne illnesses, in particular um, things like Campylobacter, which is a a, a bug you don't want, uh, as well as some different types of bacteria strains that can do damage to the kidneys. So pasteurization is one of those uh, good things. And a lot of people worry about, you know, does that significantly impact the nutritional content of that milk? And, uh, you know, based on the available evidence that we have, it does not significantly impact the, the nutrition content of that milk there. Turning it over to Kevin for another myth. Well, before I do that, just a quick follow-up on the milk discussion. If you were to recommend uh, a non-dairy milk mm. to someone, what would you pick? So, in turn, again, I feel like it always says it depends, right? But if you're looking for something that is nutritionally comparable to a dairy milk, and by that I mean the protein content of it, then a soy milk or a pea protein milk are going to be your best options there because they just have more protein in them. Uh, If that doesn't matter to you and you're just looking for something uh, to put on your cereal and not really try to replace that that chunk of protein that you may be missing, then any of them that are out there, an almond milk, cashew milk, rice milk, any of those different kinds of things, what do I drink? I drink a soy milk um, because I make my overnight oats with it. And so I'm looking for that kind of that anchor um, that comes from that extra protein there. All right. Myth number three on the list that we are debunking today on Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit says, if you want to lose weight, you have to cut out your favorite snacks. Well, that's just sad, right? And I swear, if I tell you you can't have something, that is all your brain is focused on. It's kind of like when you tell a little kid you can't, they can't do something. They're like, 
watch me, you know, uh, if I tell you you can't have something, your brain immediately starts to crave it, starts to think about the way that it tastes in your mouth, you know, all, and, and the memories that you may have associated with that particular food. Uh, like for me, ice cream. Uh, I remember sitting underneath uh, the sweet gum trees at my grandparents' house and eating ice cream with my grandfather. He didn't have any teeth and um my grandma would get mad at him if he put his good teeth in to eat snacks. And so ice cream was something that he could do. You know, he didn't have to chew it, those kinds of things. And so that's a good memory for me. And anytime I have ice cream, I think about that. And if somebody told me I could never have ice cream again, that would make me super sad, you know. So in terms of your snack options, it's not about eliminating it's about how do we balance that out, right? So if potato chips are your favorite thing, when you look at the serving size of a potato chip, it is pretty doggone sad, right? It's like seven to eight chips, depending on which one your thing is. And so if you eat seven to eight chips, you're still hungry, right? So nine times out of 10, you're going to eat more than what that serving was. And, you know, that may be okay too. But if we're trying to work towards certain uh, health goals, we probably don't want to eat the whole bag. You know, so what can we add to that snack so that we still get the thing that we enjoy while filling up on some other things? So maybe you enjoy chips and dip. Maybe we do, you know, a serving or two of chips and then some cut up veggies and the dip that you enjoy. And that way you still get crunchy something. You get to enjoy the chips, but you get to kind of dilute it out a little bit with something that's lower in calorie with also while also having some nutrient content to it as well. The other thing I see people do is they'll go for a packaged product that is um, marketed as a lower calorie version of whatever their favorite snack is. And it usually doesn't taste as good as the original. And so you eat that and it didn't satisfy that longing that you had for the original thing. And so you wind up eating something else after that. And so it really wasn't low calorie if you had it and then you went and had whatever it is you wanted before. So a smaller portion of whatever you were wanting to have balanced out with something um, else. You know, So I gave you an example for chips and, and crunchy salty types of things what if sweets are your thing uh, you know if, if you're a chocolate person then thinking about adding some fruit in there you know I've shared my apple nachos recipe before which is not really a recipe because you just cut up an apple and then you warm up some peanut butter in the microwave and drizzle it on top of there and then sprinkle it with chocolate chips right but you get that chocolate peanut buttery taste you would get from like a like a Reese's peanut butter cup which is one of my favorites actually my favorite is peanut butter M&M's, right? And so that gets me that peanut butter chocolatey combination there while letting me fill up on on the apple uh, as well. So best of both worlds there. This is Southern Remedy, Healthy and Fit. Kevin Farrell, producer, here with Josie today as we debunk some diet myths. On to our next myth, which says foods high in fat and sodium are bad. Well, it's got that word in it that I don't like. It's bad, right? Um, What you choose to eat or what you wind up eating does shouldn't be classified as good or bad, right? You know, I really dislike the assigning of moral virtues to foods. You know, I just don't find that that is helpful in general. But let's let's break that down. Aside from that, right? You know, such, uh, fats and sodium, right? Well, sodium is an essential part of you. Right. We have to have some sodium content in order to maintain um, fluid status within our body, 
for brain health, all of those different kinds of things. So sodium in and of itself is not quote unquote bad. Right. Fat is the same way. Not all fats are created equal. Um, You absolutely need fat in your diet to absorb certain vitamins. Vitamins A, D, E and K are fat soluble vitamins. So you got to have some fat on board to um, absorb those. And, you know, they're good for maintaining the health of our nerve sheaths and all kinds of good things. Right. It is less about individual macronutrients, which is where fat would fall, right? Macronutrients are carb, fat, protein, and micronutrients. So things like your iron, your sodium, your potassium, all your vitamins, those different types of things. It's less about individual ones of those and more about the nutrient package. So what comes in that food? Because very rarely are we going to eat like just fat. Like you're not just going to pick up some butter and... You might. I don't know. I think they had deep fried butter at at the fair one year. I don't know how that happens. But and then the same for sodium. Most people are not going to just pour some table salt in their hand and and lick it. You may whatever. But by and large, those things come in other foods. And so I'm not going to not consume a food that has fat in it because I'm going to eliminate all these other micronutrients that are going to come along with it. Like, let's think about avocados, right? Avocados are a high-fat food, absolutely, right? They are not a sat- not high in saturated fat, right? Uh, but they also have fiber in them, which is going to be really important for our gut health, for cholesterol lowering, all of those different kinds of things. And then they're also going to have vitamins and minerals in there that are important for health, Right. And then when we think about sodium, there's sodium in even fruits and vegetables. Right. It's not a ton of added sodium, um, but it's there. So instead of just going, I'm not going to eat fat or I'm not going to eat sodium. Think about what it comes with, because when we eliminate a whole food from our diet, we're often eliminating all the, the good bits that come along with it. Now, we certainly want to think about how those things are then prepped, right? And I often use um, oil as an example. So avocado oil, right? Um, Yes, you'll still have some of the vitamins and minerals in there. You won't have any of the fiber, right? Because you squeezed the avocado and got the oil out of it. Uh, so it's going to be more of a concentrated fat. All that's all that's in that is going to be fat with some vitamins and minerals in it. It's not going to be um, uh, going to fill you up, and it's not going to have um, that fiber in there. So if we look at it kind of head to head, and we say a tablespoon of avocado oil, that's going to be 14 grams of fat and 120 calories in that. Whereas I could eat probably at least half of that avocado for that same uh, kind of calorie and fat distribution there, depending on how big the avocado is. So which one of those things is going to fill me up and keep me more satisfied? Adding that whole avocado to something is going to do that, whereas just having the oil is not. That doesn't mean oil is bad. It just means we have to just think about it in terms of our health goals, right? And so when I'm cooking 
and I'm cook, like sauteing something, which means putting the little bits in the pan and moving them around, then I tend to not use oils in that particular um, scenario because I'm not really going to taste those oils. The oil was just there to keep the food from sticking. So I use things like stock and water or wine, you know, beer, whatever. I'm, you know, if I'm doing chili, I may deglaze it with a little bit of beer, that kind of stuff. Um, but if I'm going to taste the oil or it's going to give mouth feel and make me uh, appreciate my food more, maybe as a vinaigrette or something like that, or drizzled on some roasted vegetables, then that's kind of where I, sp- I spend my oil calories there. Um, but, you know, any, again, anything, anything can fit into a well-balanced dietary pattern and there's no good or bad uh, food out there. And Southern Remedy producer Kevin Farrell is here helping me um, with these myths. So what you got next for me? Well, Josie, this is interesting for this next one fits right in because during the break I came in and we chatted a little bit about uh, asparagus. And so for several years, uh, several years ago, I tasted some and, and sort of by I said I was at a conference and that was the meal you know provided. So I thought, oh, OK, what the heck? But before that, I never had wanted to try asparagus because, as we all know, healthy foods don't taste good. <laughs> And that is a big old myth, right? So healthy foods absolutely can taste good. Now, I agree, they can taste bad, right, depending on how they're made. Um, but the first the first step of that is your taste buds are going to need a little time to get acquainted with how food tastes. First, your taste buds do change as, as you age. I remember cucumbers were something that I absolutely detested growing up. Uh, and now I have a ginormous cucumber patch in my backyard because I adore those things. And that's really probably in the last five to six years that I really started to enjoy those things. So if there's something that you think you might not uh, like and you've never tried it or you haven't tried it in a long time, maybe try that out um, and see if that's something that you enjoy. But the way that we normally eat, right, the standard American diet, it falls largely in a lot of those ultra processed foods that I talked about earlier. And those usually have a lot of extra sodium. Again, sodium is not bad, but extra sodium above what we need, above what's naturally occurring in that food. Um, a lot of fat added to it or a lot of sugar. And all of those things are there for a reason, right? They increase how the food feels in your mouth, like how well it feels in your mouth and how well it tastes. And so when we consume that pattern uh, or those types of foods regularly, and then we switch to something that is minimally processed, our brain goes, this don't taste the same. Right. And it doesn't because it does not have all those things in there. And that may kind of lead you to initially believe I don't like this or, you know, this doesn't taste good. Those different types of things. But we got to give our our taste buds a little time to, to reset and realize that not everything is supposed to be hyper sweet or, you know, hyper fatty or hyper salty. And, and once they kind of, and I don't like the word detox, but once they kind of detox themselves out a little bit, then you start to appreciate, um, you know, the, the fatty feel of avocado in your mouth or the natural saltiness of certain foods or the natural sweetness of fruits and all of those different kinds of things. So it's a little bit of a process. You know, I, I work with a lot of folks that consume a fair amount of sugar-sweetened beverages, and it's often, you know, tea that they make or, you know, Kool-Aid fruit punch, that kind of stuff. 
And that's a good opportunity to be able to reduce some things if you're you're making those things at home already. But if I tell you to go from sweet tea to unsweet tea, you are going to not like me um, because it, it it tastes very different. Unsweet tea is very bitter. I drink unsweet tea, but that's what I grew up drinking because my daddy didn't drink sweet tea. So I didn't have to get used to that. But if you're going from sweet to unsweet, it's a little bit of a process. And, you know, I usually ask folks, well, how much sugar do you put in your gallon of sweet tea that you make? And, you know, people tell me anywhere from a cup to two cups of sugar that they put in there. So let's just step it down a little bit so that we give our taste buds an opportunity to readjust. So maybe if you're putting two cups of sugar in there, we go to one and a half cups for the next couple of weeks and get used to that. Then bump it down to um, a cup and then you just kind of gradually, uh, gradually decrease it down. Same deal with uh, salt. You know, if we're using um, super salty packaged products, looking at going to just the reduced sodium version of that and then using other seasonings to season that food so that it does taste good because that is the number one rule with food for me is it has to taste good, right? I am not going to be miserable eating food. I love food too much for that. And so it's got to taste good. But, you know, once you begin to do that and you give your taste buds time to kind of kind of readjust, there are so many flavors out there that aren't just salty sweet and fatty right you really start to appreciate the textures and the different flavors that are inherent in the different fruits and veggies and grains and all those things that you um are used to you know when if you've ever watched a cooking show right and they start to they take a bite and then they start to describe the food and they are using words like nutty and um you know um, acidic and all these kinds of stuff and you're thinking i have never had a food that tasted like that it, it may be because there was a an kind of a overreaching uh, saltiness or fattiness or sweetness that was keeping you from getting all the different flavors. Like if you do a nice whole grain like a barley, it does have that good nutty taste to it. But you got to let your palate get used to that or you're not going to enjoy it. And you don't want to spend your very hard earned money on foods that you don't enjoy. This is Southern Remedy, Healthy and Fit. Kevin Farrell, producer, here with Josie as we debunk. debunk I keep I have messed you up with, with that, that word today. <laughs> <laughs> we are debunking some diet myths. And the next one on the list says BMI, body mass mm-hmm. index, is the best measure of obesity and cardiometabolic health. That's a big old word, right? You did great with that one. So what does that mean? Well, you know, obesity, you know, how much body weight we're carrying around. And then cardiometabolic health is just our heart and endocrine system, right? So high blood pressure, high cholesterol, what your insulin levels are doing, what your blood sugar is looking like, all, you know, all those components of just overall heart health. And so is BMI the best marker of that? And the answer is no. You know, um, now you go, well, why does my doctor do it? Right. Why do you do it, Josie? So from a population level, right, BMI is useful. So if I am looking at a group of people, like let's say Mississippi, right, and I'm wanting to um, have an idea about what health 
um, issues may be affecting Mississippians, using BMI can be a good thing, right? Because I can say, oh, this BMI shows that the majority of Mississippians are in the overweight or obese category. Um, So by, you know, knowing what that can put you at increased risk for, I can say, you know, we may have a higher rate of heart disease, diabetes, those types of things, right? Or other um, weight-related disorders like, you know, osteoarthritis or um, colon cancer, these different types of things there, right? Um, What a BMI looks at is it is simply a calculation that looks at what your weight is compared to your height, right? It does not, it is not able to differentiate what, those um, components of your weight are, right? Your body composition, right? Is it fat? Is it muscle? Is it bone? Is it, um, you know, body fluid, that kind of stuff. And so just getting on the scale doesn't tell me whether that is someone who has a majority of their body composition as lean muscle tissue and very low fat or someone who has low lean muscle tissue and more fat. So on an individual basis, BMI is not a great marker. It's just one of those things that makes me or should make your provider go, let me look at this person now, right? You know, if I get uh, a BMI that's above goal that we want or put somebody in the overweight or obese category, I should then go, well, let me look at this person, right? And let me look at their body composition. Where is their weight located, right? Is it more in their lower extremities, like their thighs? In premenopausal women, it's not bad to carry that a little bit of extra weight right there, right? That is there for um, helping to to nourish a growing baby, right? So it has less cardio cardiometabolic impact. Um, is it located, is there extra weight located all around their midsection, right? Uh, which is where are we carrying it? Or is it not adipose tissue or fat tissue at all? They're a very muscular person um, that that that's what their weight is coming from. So it's just merely a screening tool. A screening tool is one of those things that just says, hey, this person might be um, at risk for something. You need to look a little bit deeper. And so I much prefer um, a waist circumference as a measure because, again, that helps me uh, stratify risk, right? If we carry more of our weight around our belly section, that uh, tends to point more towards insulin resistance and maybe even some fatty liver types of things. Um, and so that's not necessarily the direction that I want us to go in for good health. So measuring a waist circumference is a good way for me to, or a, a cheap, quick, non-invasive way for me to kind of see if our weight is hanging out around our midsection or not. Um, Now, all you need is a tape measure for that. You do want to make sure that you're measuring in the correct spot. You know, some people um, have differing opinions where their waist is, right? So um, really having a healthcare provider measure it uh, for you is a good option um, so that we can make sure we're getting it in the correct spot to, to measure that. But in general, we want um, men to be below 40 inches. We want women to be below 35 inches. Uh, more than that uh, tells me that we may be hanging out to a little bit uh, more weight around our midsection, which is associated with heart disease.
You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm Josie Bidwell, nurse practitioner at UMMC, and we're debunking some nutrition myths today. And we are in the last segment of the show, so I'm going to turn it right on over to you, Kevin, and you can just blast me away with some myths. All right. This next one says exercise isn't necessary for weight loss. Oh, and remember, these are myths, right? So I'm going to I'm going to break your heart and tell you that some exercise is necessary. And hear me out. Here's why. Okay. When we gain weight, it is usually fat tissue, right? So when you put on weight, it is not muscle, right, by and large. Like if you just, uh, you know, kind of stop working on a balanced nutrition plan and you're just eating whatever, what you gain is usually fat, right? Even if you're eating a high-protein diet and not exercising, that gets stored as fat okay when you try to lose weight right so you go oh i gotta do something gotta lose some weight and you start to do things if we're not adding in exercise and specifically resistance-based exercises then what we lose is not only fat okay so what we gain is mostly fat what we lose is lean muscle tissue and some fat right and so lean muscle tissue is what burns calories for us. And so if we don't work to maintain that lean muscle tissue, we're just going to lose it. And then, you know, when we decide this diet is bonkers and I'm not going to do this anymore and you stop it and you go back to eating the way you were, then you gain fat back, right? And then you have less lean muscle tissue on board to burn calories for you. That's why... These yo-yo diets often result in you gaining the weight back plus a little bit more. All right. So good, lasting, sustainable weight loss or weight management, having exercise as a piece of that, and in particular, the resistance piece to help hang on and grow lean muscle tissue is really important. So we got to give our body the building blocks that it needs to build that muscle. So a well-balanced diet with a good amount of protein on it. Um, but then we have to do something with that protein and we have to, to use it. And so resistance exercises are things um, that literally is resistance, right? Meaning you're pushing against something or you're pulling against something. And that can be accomplished in a gym on weight machines, right? Where you're lifting weights or pulling down things, but it doesn't have to be in the gym. It can be at home, right? Um, squats, push-ups, um, uh row uh, like a row machine all of those different types of things um, have resistance it's really just using your muscle against a force whether that be to push something or to pull something Um, you know the southern remedy fitness prescription that we put together several years ago has a great at-home resistance program associated with it that you use completely at home uh, with things that you can make right like you can use a soup can or a can of corn or whatever those are a pound each uh to to go through some of the exercises to add extra resistance against that muscle tissue there so that's why exercise is important when you're trying to lose weight all right josie another quick follow-up is uh swinging a tennis racket or a baseball bat resistance yeah it can be absolutely um because that is something in addition to your body weight that you're holding and moving through. So, you know, those types of physical activities are things that combine cardio, right? Because you're definitely going to get your heart rate up and moving around with the resistance piece uh, added in. So that is a great one. Um, and, and most other than just 
playing um, on a treadmill, walking on a flat surface is going to have some resistance, right? You know, if you really like um, a treadmill or you really like walking outside, think about changes in elevation with that because that's going to increase the resistance on your lower body. All right, this next one, and I think it might be the last one we have time for, but we'll see. But it says, fad diets are okay when used in the short term to jumpstart weight loss. Well, that one is a great one to follow the last comment, on just the, or the last question that we just had there, because they're really not. You know, when a fad diet usually is something that is going to cause very rapid weight loss, um, because it is very restrictive. You're either eliminating a macronutrient, like let's say going on a very low carb diet or a very low fat diet, those kinds of things. And there's only three macronutrients, right? It's carb, fat, protein. So when you go down on one, you're going to have to increase the other ones. And how you do that matters, right? And it matters as to whether this is a sustainable way that you're going to eat for a lifetime. Because if it's not, we're going to do exactly what I just talked about in the last uh, myth, which is we're going to lose muscle tissue, And then when we decide, hey, this isn't fun, I'm not going to do this anymore, or I can't afford to eat this way anymore, or what I see a lot of times is nobody else in my family eats this way, and I'm tired of cooking two or three meals, those different kinds of things, and they go back to eating the way you were before, you're going to essentially have replaced some of that lean muscle tissue with with fat, and you're just going to get in this cycle. And what you're doing is you're actually shifting your body composition. So you're shifting down the percent of your body that's made of lean muscle tissue and shifting up the proportion of your body that is made of, of adipose tissue or fat tissue. And that is that tissue is not helpful in terms of supporting your metabolic health and supporting a metabolic rate that helps you burn calories and those kinds of things. So I always get... Uh, it always makes me a little sad when people are like, well, I'm just going to do it for three weeks, right? And I always want to go, well, what is the plan at the end of the three weeks, right? Um, are we using this to transition to, you know, a, a completely plant-based way of eating? Or are we planning to add back in some of those ultra-processed um, foods bef- that you cut out beforehand? Because that's why these things work a lot, of t- a lot of the times, is they cut out a lot of the junky foods that we were eating before. Um, but in the long term, we're not replacing them with health-promoting foods. We just kind of slide back into that way of eating before. And that all boils back down into not putting labels on yourself and not uh, being so rigid in your way of eating. That's just an extra barrier around uh, around your health. You know, just choose things that look like what they started out as the majority of the time and, uh, you know, balance out that plate where you've got half a plate of fruits and vegetables, a quarter of a plate of grains and a quarter of a plate of protein, whether that be a plant based protein or an animal based protein, if that's something that you choose there. But that balance is really, really key. All right, guys, this was a fun one. I really enjoyed um, kind of digging through some of these myths that I encounter uh, in clinic, as well as some of the myths that you guys send me through email. And if you would like to do that, if you'd like to send me a myth to debunk or something that you're just curious about, I love to get those. Um, My email is fit at mpbonline.org. 
This was uh, a quick hour, but it went right on by. If you did not catch the show in its entirety, you can always go back and go to our podcast by searching for Southern Remedy wherever you get your podcasts. And remember to tune in every weekday at 11 for the full Southern Remedy lineup. You've been listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.